The History with Jackson podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I hope you're enjoying my gravelly voice on these intros. I've recorded these whilst I have a cold, so they won't be here for much longer and it doesn't affect this episode either. Now in this episode I speak to Tanner Campbell. Tanner is the host of the Practical Stoicism podcast and platform and he's a really great guy. And in this episode, Tanner and I had a conversation about Stoicism, its origins, its historical roots and an intellectual history of the philosophy. And we also talk about where the philosophy intersects with history as a discipline. I thought this was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him about you know, why he started his podcast and why he felt a podcast was the best way to make the philosophy accessible as well. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Tanner. I know I certainly enjoyed producing it, hosting it and making it. And without further ado, I'll leave you with myself and Tanner. Right, hi guys and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. So today we are with philosopher, writer, podcast host, a good friend of mine, Tanner Campbell. How are you doing, Tanner, man? I am good, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me. This is kind of cool. I've had no. you on my show and now... Here I am on your show. I feel like I'm very underqualified to talk about certain things in history, but hopefully in in this case, I'm going to nail it. No, it's been a long time. I've I've wanted to get you on for ages, so it's actually great to to connect with you and actually get you on the podcast, but finally. Well, there'll be more opportunities for that because I'm moving to the UK and like permanently in in seven days from now. Mate, we have to meet up. You know, I've got those little road mics. And doing podcasting with them on in person is actually it's I think it's my favorite type of interviewing and podcasting, to be honest. I think people are a little too obsessed with sound quality these days. Of course, me being one of those people, but <laughs> I, I love the ambient noise so long as it doesn't get in the way of the conversation. So I'd love to hear people talking outside with the birds tweeting and such. That's nice. So what we'll I think we'll try and try and get that sorted when you move over. Once you're all settled in, obviously. So Today, Tanner, I wanted to talk about Stoicism uh, and history um, and about yourself as well. So you run you run this amazing podcast called Practical Stoicism. I just wanted to ask you where the inspiration came from for that podcast, because I've followed you for ages um, before you started that podcast, and it would be really interesting to hear that story. So in 2000 and... I'm a little hazy on dates, but 2013 or 14, I had a production company that ended for various reasons that were a little depressing for me. And I came across stoicism around the same time. And I started a podcast called Epictetus is my therapist. And you can still find that podcast, but none of the audio files work. Thank goodness, because I didn't know my rear from my elbow uh, at that time. So it's, it's good that that stuff isn't there to discredit me now. But what I found in the philosophy was a sort of practicality that I really enjoyed. And I used that podcast as, you could say like therapy of a kind. It was my introduction to stoicism and it allowed me to just kind of work through some issues from the quote unquote or what I thought was at the time, again, I was much younger, uh, the stoic perspective. And I did that for, I don't know, at least six months or so. And then I thought, okay, I've gotten something out of this. This was never intended to be anything more than a kind of therapy for myself. So I'm going to walk away from it and I will continue to engage with stoic literature and this stoic mindset uh, as I as I get older. The thing is that over the years that followed that, I was a pretty piss poor 
excuse for a stoic practitioner or, or what I now know is called a prokopton, somebody who is on, on the path to virtue, so to speak, to a virtuous character. And this culminated as a lot of things did for a lot of people during COVID because I owned a production studio in Maine at that time. And COVID forced me out of that world because it's kind of hard to put people in a recording studio when everyone needs to be, you know, X amount of feet apart uh, or you're in some violation of a statute or something and you're getting fined. So my studio, I saw the writing on the wall and decided, okay, I'm not going to go bankrupt here. I'm just going to shut the thing down and admit defeat rather than being proud and uh, (laughs) marching unwillingly towards uh, a bankrupted end or something. So I did that. And in the fallout of that, I also, at the same time, the house we were renting, the owner decided they were going to sell the house. So not only had I just closed my business, but now I was going to have to relocate to another home. And that same week, and I'm not kidding, Jackson, all of this happened within a span of 14 days. That same week, because I had gotten behind on so many things through the pandemic, my car got repossessed like the day before I got enough money to pay for the back payments on the vehicle. So it was just, it was a terrible time. And we relocate to my partner at the time. Uh, We're not partners anymore, but at the time we were. And we moved to uh, Denver, Colorado and we set up shop there and I keep doing what you mostly know me for consulting in the media space for podcasters to grow their audiences and to monetize in various ways. And I kind of limped along, but what I noticed in January of last year, so a little over a year ago now, I guess a year and a half, I had drifted so far from being in any capacity in control of anything to do with my emotions, anything to do with being careful about what I was thinking and whether or not those things were true. And if I was assenting to what are referred to in, uh, in stoicism as uh, untrue impressions or inaccurate impressions. And if I was, if I was as a, because I was doing that, if I was just kind of creating this reality for myself, that was mostly due to my poor judgment about my situation, instead of any real value judgment of where I was, I I wasn't empowered. I was depressed. I mean, like it, it was a really bad, It was a really bad state for me in January of last year. And I thought, you know, I remember that Stoicism podcast I did. And gosh, that was really helpful at the time. And I kind of feel like that again. And so I thought, I'm doing all these other podcasts. I'm working with all these other podcast clients. And maybe it's time I do a podcast just for me. Maybe I'll do another therapy podcast. And that was Practical Stoicism because I thought, if I'm going to approach this, I need to approach it practically because that was the thing that I really enjoyed about stoicism when I had been introduced to it all those years ago. And quite by accident, probably because of the way I presented myself as a student, which I still consider myself to be, even though people now call me an American philosopher of stoicism, which is a trip and a half, uh, because I presented myself as a student, I think that people were really interested in hearing how I was going through this and how I was studying and how I was learning and how I was improving myself in a way that was not in alignment with what other creators, not all other creators, but many, and especially popular creators in Stoicism usually use Stoicism for, which is like this, what we jokingly refer to as broicism or uh, capital or dollar sign S, you know, Silicon Valley stoicism, where it's all about motivation and ignoring your emotions and you've got to be a wolf instead of a sheep, you know, that kind of nonsense. And I think I was one of, not the only, but one of very few people who were talking about stoicism in a, 
as a podcaster in a serious sense. So people latched onto it. And by, you know, March, I had thousands of listeners a day. And then by yeah. June, I had half, you know, like 300,000 listeners a month. And I was like, oh, this is an accident. But now that I, that, that this happy accident has happened, people are starting to pay attention, uh, especially ad networks and things like that. And I wound up signing in October of last year with a, with a network called Glassbox and philosophy and stoicism became my full-time job. Now, the minute that happened, I thought, okay, I'm very much in this capacity being trusted by nearly half a million people. And, you know, I've really given this a very honest effort and I study pretty hard, but if, if I'm now, if I've become now a resource for people to go to, to learn this stuff, I have got to be more, I've got to put a full-time effort into learning it because before it was, you know, it was therapy yeah, <laughs> uh, and it accidentally got popular and I wasn't at all spending 40 hours a week on learning or establishing better stoic practices or studying the text. And now it was my full-time job. So now I should be. And around that time I met who is now my co-host, uh, Kai Whiting, who's also a professor of, uh, he's an engineer and professor of sustainability and also of stoicism at uh, the University of Louvain in Belgium. He took me on as a mentor and we kind of hit it off as a friendship. And then through that mentorship and through me learning more and more, we, we just kind of became fast friends and he's now a regular fixture on the podcast. So he and I discussed stoicism in what we consider to be a traditionalist way, uh, the way the ancient Greeks or ancient Romans would. And we try to help young people, young males in particular, although around 15% of our audience is female. We try to help young people realize the importance of developing good characters because that's really what what we feel the purpose of life is, uh, and we're one of the only one of the only yeah. podcasts doing that. Yeah, I mean, I'm on I'm on the Discord community that you built for that for that podcast and that community, uh, and and seeing the way that you're all interacting with each other and enforcing uh, stoic practices. Um, within the community is really nice to see that you're all working together. Um, and I, I, I see a lot of parallels with the way I came into podcasting and the way I came into doing what I do with the way that you do, you know, you, you felt, you know, feeling quite lost at a point, you know, during the pandemic and not knowing what I wanted to do and staying in touch with academia. That's how this came about. And it's very similar, you know, to, to what, how you came into it. And even though I, I knew you from good morning podcasters, um, which is how I how I've learned a lot of what I do. Some, but some people might you know, listening to this conversation might not know what stoicism is. So, could you just break it down as to? I know we've touched on a few uh, few points in it, but like just explain what stoicism is then. So, stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy founded by Zeno of Citium in 300 BCE, roughly. That's kind of the accepted date. He was a Phoenician, and he was shipwrecked. And he didn't know what to do after being shipwrecked. There's a lot to this story, but you could YouTube it. It's a yeah. fairly well-known story. And he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, and the Oracle of Delphi says, well, you got to make some changes. She, she offers this really famous advice, take on the pallor of the dead or take on the color of the dead, which for whatever reason, Zeno took to mean I need to read the old dead philosophers. And so he does that and he meets uh, Crates the Cynic in a bookshop quite serendipitously. It's a very meet cute moment for Zeno and Crates. And that leads to him studying as a cynic and then parting 
quite dramatically from what I understand, from the Cynic school to found his own school around, again, 300 BCE. And the whole purpose of Stoicism, as according to the ancient Stoics, is the attainment of virtue, which to the ancient Stoics is considered to be a certain kind of knowledge. Specifically, it's the knowledge of how to live excellently or well. It's the knowledge of how to live appropriately or a good life the right way. And that manifests in purpose as the aim of Stoicism is to develop a virtuous character, to become essentially a sage. And while the aim of Stoicism might be to become a sage, the point of it is found in a practice called prosake, which is the act of paying attention. So Stoics spend a lot of time thinking about the emotions they're having and reasoning through whether the emotions they're having are appropriate emotions and whether they lead to the ascending to or assenting to rather impressions that they then kind of internalize as opinions about what is real and what isn't. And so Stoics are often misconstrued as these kind of emotionless people Uh, But really, that couldn't be further from the truth. We spend a lot of time examining our thoughts, emotions, and attitudes uh, because we also believe that the only things that anyone is able to choose, sometimes that's that's translated as able to control things which are within our control and which are not. I like to say things that we have the power to choose and things we do not have the power to choose that the only things that we can that we have the power to choose are our own actions, our own attitudes, our own thoughts, and to some extent, our own emotions. Uh, so there's a difference between, for example, proto-emotions, like somebody jumps out from behind a dark corner and scares you and you jump. That's not because you're not stoic. It's because you didn't have the opportunity to notice the emotion and kind of, uh, let's say, analyze it and decide whether or not it was an appropriate emotion. So so some emotions we have control over, but uh, not all. It's it's quite an interesting way of uh, thinking and, and looking at your life uh, and trying to be prepared for things in a way by being able to, to think through and analyze. Um, now, you mentioned it's, it's come about in, in 350 BCE. You know, I, I'm, I'm quite interested. 300, 300. Oh, 300, sorry, 300. Do you want to retake it? Uh, so it's okay. I'm trying. Um, yeah, I, I want to look at how stoicism intersects with with history, um, because you know this, this is a period where I don't know an awful lot about. I'm be uh, I'm trying to learn more about myself, um, and it's it's you know these these philosophers of these periods are incredibly influential. Uh, and it'd be interesting to know what your thoughts and how they intersect. Well, I will be the first to admit that I am no historian. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a, a great historian of Stoicism is a man named uh, Donald Robertson, specifically as Stoicism relates to uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who is perhaps the most, certainly, perhaps only slightly, arguably, the most powerful Stoic that ever existed. Donald Robertson knows a lot about him and, in fact, is in the process of writing a book, I think, about the history of Stoicism that I think is coming out through Oxford University Press soon. I'm, I'm on your podcast plugging someone else's book, but yeah. it's, it's worth checking out. I also have a book coming out, but I, I kind of hate self-promotion, so I'm not going to do that. Um, Stoicism has in – you have to look at the time period that Stoicism arises, right? You've got – life is hard. <laughs> and yeah. it's probably very useful to people 
to have this philosophy that lends itself to practical thinking and having a practical outlook on this terrible, disastrous reality that probably surrounds you unless you are part of the economic elite or the leadership class or you're you know, in the Senate or something like that uh, in ancient Rome, or if you're in the leadership class in ancient Greece. So I think one of the reasons that it gains popularity to the extent that it becomes the philosophy of what are referred to, one of Marcus Aurelius, one of what are referred to as the, as, as the last five good emperors, I think it gets there because I think it gains that popularity because of how practical it is. And then, of course, Marcus writes his famous meditations, and that alone may be the entire reason that Stoicism survives as something we all still talk about today. Because if you read meditations, you're like, wow, this guy, this guy's an emperor and he's so humble and he's an emperor and he's been through these terrible things. He lost almost all of his kids. He had, he lost all of his sons, but one, I think he had like, I think I want to say he had like eight kids and all of them, but one died, something like that. And, and he somehow was able to remain sane and measured and was by and large a pretty great emperor as far as emperors go. Yeah. So much so that he's identified as one of, like I said, the last five good emperors or the five good emperors. It's pretty amazing. Have I drifted there? No, no, it's completely fine. No, it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a, I think it's a good point to bring actually looking at it's it's influence across history as well because when you look at when you look at Rome, and I've had several conversations with uh, Dr. Simon Elliott on the podcast about Rome, and you look at you look at the emperors, and there was so many terrible emperors who were just horrible people, and their influence on society and their their influence on history actually is, is led to them being usually the ones that we we remember and sometimes we idolize because of their party like status you know they held parties like this like so big that so many people came to and they drank vats and vats of wine or they're 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 remembered because they had such a short reign or they killed so many people and it's it's interesting to see how that that legacy from from greece and it's inspiration for um, certain emperors has led to them being remembered as one of those five great emperors well what i really like about stoicism and i like a lot of things about it it's it's my entire life at the moment <laughs> uh, it's that what a powerful thing to think that to believe that the only good and the stoics did say that virtue was the only good not the highest or one of that the only good is a virtuous character Virtue is the only good, and so a virtuous character is good. Imagine how that changes the way you interact with and decide anything. If your number one goal, your only goal, is to become a good, capital G, as in virtuous, person, all of a sudden when presented with a life-threatening situation, it doesn't become about, well, will I survive if I do this action or will I die? It becomes about what is the appropriate thing to do? What is the thing I should do in this situation based on my roles, based on my ability, that would be the good, the virtuous, or the thing approaching virtue thing to do? Imagine having an emperor like that. That's what you have in 
Marcus Aurelius. Imagine having a citizenry like that or a soldiery like that. Zeno actually wrote a republic in the same way that there's a Plato's Republic, there's a Zeno's Republic. We only have very few fragments of it, but the but Zeno's Republic is that all of the leadership are sages and every there are no laws. It's almost like a it's kind of like a not chaos, but um oh gosh, what do they call the anar it's almost anarchism in, in the sense that there are no laws. There are no rules. There are just things that happen and people reasoning through them with virtue at the center of that reasoning in real time, which is, of course, probably not a very practical, (laughs) right? These utopias, uh, these republics never seem to emerge, but it's a very nice idea that our focus isn't, let's see how much money we can make, or let's see how many, I don't know, how many kids we can raise, or let's see how any other goal, how, how, how many businesses I can make. Instead, it's how can I, based on my resources and my capacity, how can I be a virtuous person? And that's that's your lifelong aim and goal. And I don't know another, I don't know another virtue-centric philosophy that does that, other than perhaps, ironically, cynicism. But cynicism doesn't have the social component. Uh, Stoics thought that we were part of a cosmopolis or world city, and so we had a responsibility to society. Whereas the cynics believe virtue was the only good, but they didn't have that. Uh, they didn't have that concern for participating in society. They might have said, you know, virtue can be had by yourself living in a pot over here in the street, as yeah. Diogenes did. So I think the powerful thing, and perhaps the thing that people really latch on to when they get past that broicism bit of stoicism, is the realization that, wow, this is all about developing a good character. And I said before that there's not another virtue centric philosophy that really says that because the only other virtue-centric philosophies that I can think of off the top of my head are usually religions. And religion cares about virtue to its credit, but it cares about it for a very interesting reason. Yeah. <laughs> right? The, the Stoics care about virtue because, well, it's a little bit complicated, but there is a God in Stoicism. Uh, it's just not the same God that you might find in an Abrahamic religion or Buddhism. There's no afterlife, no things like that. In fact, the God of Stoicism is... Uh, not supernatural. It is, in fact, the universe itself. So this might freak some of your listeners out. This might sound a little bit weird, uh, but the Stoics viewed the universe as a type of animal. Now, that's the part that people might, if I don't finish this sentence, people will think that that's weird. Uh, But essentially what they're saying is that there are zebras. Those are a kind of animal. And there are giraffes. Those are a kind of animals. And for some reason, I have a predilection for African animals, I guess. So I'll just say there are also polar bears, and that's a kind of animal. And then there's the universe, which itself is a kind of animal. So the idea is that because the universe is an animal, animal systems have a tendency to skew towards a kind of organization that preserves the animal. And so we is, and, and that in the universe is reason and logic. So, so the cosmos is ordered rationally and with reason. And so we as human beings should want to mirror that reason, should want to mirror what the universe is. And so we, and the way that a human being does that is that they develop virtue and a good character because we happen to be, as far as we know, really, the only animals with this sort of consciousness that we have, the ability to worry about the future, contemplate the present, and ruminate on the past because we can do that 
we can't do what the honeybee does, for example, which is a honeybee just wakes up and does what a honeybee does. It's not making decisions. It's not like, oh, I don't know, this isn't what I feel like doing today. I'd rather go to the pool. And so yeah. since human beings don't default to what is considered by Stoics to be the nature of a human being, and we have to think through it, it becomes our aim to kind of go against this, not to go against or repress our consciousness, but to use our consciousness to fulfill what would be our nature, which to the Stoics is service to the community and and being virtuous, becoming a sage if if you can. So yeah. <laughs> So other religions don't say that. Other religions say the reason that you develop virtue or the reason that you act virtuously is, well, because if you don't, there's going to be some serious ramifications for you not doing so. So Stoicism, uh, again, apart from cynicism, is really the only virtue ethics framework that I can think of, virtue ethics-based philosophy that I can think of that puts the individual human being at the center of the why instead of the instead of some supernatural exo-universe that is to say, outside of the universe, uh, entity that judges you and will punish you if you don't do so. Uh, I, I find it really interesting how this philosophy and this idea has emerged out of a a region which is, you know, there's quite a lot of conflict going off in that region throughout that time. Um, the region is also quite disjointed. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion about who's ruling which areas. There's also it's also another time period where a lot of ideas about tyranny and autocracy um, and the ideas of how people should rule as well through you know stoicism there as well. But with democracy, these it's the same place where the, a lot of these ideas are coming from, um, and it's interesting how stoicism is part of that same area of the world. Well, there's actually a theory. I don't know how many people hold this theory to be reasonable, but I tend to agree with it, that the reason that we have Plato's Republic survived and Zeno's Republic didn't is that the thing which followed Rome, which was by and large Western theology, right, was mostly Catholicism, Christianity, and such, that they didn't really know what to do with the idea that there should be no rules and that nature was nature was the universe and the universe was the God and there, there were no forms of eternal punishment and such. And so we leaned away from that. And there's this huge gap basically between Marcus Aurelius and I don't know, like the early 1900s when people start to rediscover these things. Uh, and I think really in the 1970s in particular, where we don't really have any Stoic writing. We have some people who were critics of Stoicism, like Cicero wouldn't have called himself a Stoic, I don't believe, and was pretty critical. There's also Plutarch was pretty critical. So it's actually true that a lot of the things we know about Stoicism come down to us in the writings of people who criticize them. And in in thankfully, in the time periods that they criticized them, like being accurate in your criticisms was incredibly important. So you had to be very well informed. Cicero had to be very well informed. Plutarch had to be very well informed. Diogenes Laertes, who wrote The Life and Times of uh, Famous Philosophers or something, I think that's the name of the work, had to really know what this thing was that they were criticizing or documenting. And, you know, we have Marcus, we have Seneca, we have Epictetus, we have some fragments of a man, a Roman named Musonius Rufus. We have fragments of Zeno's Republic. We have 
very few works of Chrysippus. I don't know who's a Greek, that same as Zeno. And I don't, well, again, Zeno was a Phoenician, but lived in Greece. We'll, we'll call him Greek for the sake of this conversation. And we have very little, if any, work, I think, from Cleanthes. And those uh, latter three men were scholars of the Stoic school. So you basically have Greek Stoicism gets ported. I don't know necessarily through Musonius Rufus, but I think he's a big part of that. Gets ported from Athenian, what might be considered Zenonian Stoicism in its most original form. It gets ported into Rome, and of course, Rome is very different than Greece in a few ways, and you probably understand those ways more than I do. And so it takes on this kind of, it begins to focus more on aspects of like control. So Epictetus is somebody who writes about the what we now call, but what he didn't refer to as the dichotomy of control, which is probably a term that you've heard before, the idea that there are things we control and things that we don't. And that in inside of Roman culture gains a lot of popularity. And one could say that if Rome didn't exist, Stoicism may never have made it out of Athens, and we may still not know it, may have never made it out of Greece, and we'd know nothing about it. So I'm not trying to detract from the value of those Roman philosophers, but it definitely changed some of the focus uh, when it came over to Rome. And I think that that focus has changed again as we pick things up in the mid-1900s, um, and People are now, Stoicism is the broicism that I talked about earlier. It's, you know, how can I endure the 80 hours of work I need to do for my startup in Silicon Valley to work so that I can make all this money and, you know, basically just focus on the things that I can control, which is, you know, my workout and how many cigars I can smoke a day. And it's really, it's really not uh, cosmopolitan or cosmopolis centric in the way that, Greek and Roman uh, understandings of Stoicism would have been. That was a was a really interesting intellectual history there, the evolution of it as well, um, because I think the 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 porting, I think the the word that you're using there is probably the nicest word, the porting of a lot of <laughs> as Greek... opposed to the bastardization. Yeah, <laughs> I think some people would say that. Yes, uh, yeah the uh, the Romans have a lot to answer for in terms of that respect, but. I think in the way that they ported a lot of cultural values and a lot of religious aspects out of Greece into their own culture um, was very interesting because there's a lot of adaptations made to suit their culture best and, and to suit their own goals as well. Um, and I, th I think there's a, there's a really nice evolutionary track there of, of of witnessing how it's evolved and yet again into how it's evolved today so we kind of touched on the the relevancy of, of stoicism today so I, I kind of want to move on to this next question where we're kind of sensing that sometimes history and philosophy are becoming increasingly acts in it i mean you've spoken about this a couple of times before they're becoming increasingly inaccessible uh to to people you know you can i've i've said it to you multiple times and i've sent you a, a picture of a journal before where you open the first page and you just don't understand what they're going on about why why have you chosen a podcast and, and and books as your way of trying to make stoicism accessible because so what you're talking about is infuriating to me for a number of reasons, uh, least of all to do with the fact that, again, while people refer to me as an American philosopher of stoicism, I'm always very quick to say I dropped out of high school and my college education is very incomplete. You have to understand that 
you know, you can be a philosopher if you philosophize. I guess those are the rules. But yeah. I like to I like to point out that I don't have a PhD. So when I read these books and and have studied for for I've read so many books that I open the first page and I'm like, oh my God, okay. This is written like it's meant to be published for academics in the field to read. And I understand why that's the case, right? You're an academic. You need funding to do research because research is your life. That's what you want to do. And you have to pay the piper and the piper is the academic publishers and journals and they sell your book for a hundred dollars. I mean, Margaret Graver probably wrote the best book on stoicism and emotions, which is in fact its title and it's 300 page, 10 point font, denser than I don't know, New York cheesecake. <laughs> and it is a treasure trove of insight into into exactly what the title of the book is, Stoicism and Emotion. And no, very few people who are interested in Stoicism that I know have read that book or would open that book and spend more than 10 minutes figuring out that, okay, this book <laughs> is not a book that I'm going to read. And so you go and you try to get it on an audio book because that makes it a little bit more accessible. But guess what? That book and most books at that level are not turned into, they're not turned into audio books. And so they, they become these really daunting, almost like tasks that you have to get through. And everybody's like, okay, well, that's not, I don't want to get into stoicism if it's going to be that deep. So instead I'll consume it from places like, uh, like Ryan Holiday, or I'll consume it from places like Tim Ferriss, and they have personally may have very fantastically deep understandings of Stoicism, but their content suggests that what they're trying to do is, to some extent, especially this is the case with Ryan Holiday, make a living off of the not as deep surface level stuff because they know, as you've just pointed out, or at least hinted at, they know that if they go deep, nobody's going to really listen because that's boring. Uh, your episode where we talked about Russian and Chinese history separately uh, in regards to current goings on in, in the world has remains one of the most popular episodes uh, featuring an interview on, on my podcast. People love it. They constantly ask when you're coming back. You've been mentioned in a few reviews. One person was quite angry about that, about that interview because, of course, they were. Um, but I think there's this perception in media, and this is me putting on my media consultant hat, that no one has time, and so they won't listen. And so the only way you can teach is in this increasingly diluted, vapid approach to teaching, right? Oh, we've got to fit it in a 10-second TikTok or nobody's going to listen. Okay, well, I think 10-second TikToks have a you know maybe something valuable that they can teach us, so long as you're not trying to cram a year's worth of discussion into a 10 second TikTok because you cannot do that. And so I started this podcast for therapy, but as it started to get more serious and as people started to trust its content, and I realized I had the responsibility I mentioned earlier, I was like, this can't, this has to, I have to do more than just a meditation on Saturday and an interpretation that does, that goes deeper than I think any other podcast that focuses on Marcus Aurelius's meditations exclusively, at least it did at the time. I have to do more than that. So now I do meditations on Monday. I do Seneca's letters on Tuesday. I do a, uh, a kind of open discussion on Wednesday. And on Fridays, we do listener mailbags so that we can really get into the weeds of 
one of my favorite questions that gets asked all the time is, I'd like to be a stoic, but I really like pornography. Are these two things compatible? <laughs> and, you know, we get to have those conversations. And I think that, again, there's this, there's this perception in media and content creation that you have to be shallow or short, at least. It doesn't necessarily have to be shallow, but it has to be short or nobody's going to listen. And I think that what that has created is a market of people who are just so tired of really minimal educations in pretty much everything, and they're looking for deeper content. One of the reasons I think that Joe Rogan is successful, and I know a lot of people may maybe have just rolled their eyes when I said that name, it's not necessarily because his content is right or wrong or even good in some cases. It's because he has conversations no one else is willing to have. And I think there's a really big interest in that. And people like you and I could be leveraging that by having, maybe not, I don't want to put a crown on my head here and say that this conversation is particularly <laughs> deeper and lighting, but that, that you and I are in positions to have, to, to host those kinds of conversations and be maybe better than Joe Rogan, right? <laughs> but probably not as well paid, but at least as deep and ask those questions. Like uh, we have a workshop coming up um, that if, if anybody's interested in, you can go to actualstoicism.com. We do a workshop every month, minimum a dollar donation to attend these. So it's, they're really accessible. And we're doing this on uh, stoicism and sex and sexuality. What does stoicism say about sex? Masonius Rufus, for example, said that you should only get married and have sex for the purposes of reproduction. <laughs> so, so is that what stoicism, by and large, says about uh, sex. Let's talk about that. And and what does it say about pornography? And what does it say about uh, having more than one partner? And and does it say anything? And how do these things reflect on our character? So, I think I saw the opportunity. Eventually, I saw the responsibility to the people that I was reaching. But then I also saw the opportunity to do something that really was only happening within a very small circle of stoic conferences like stoicon for example and i think maybe 100 or 200 people might show up to that in a year it's not like a huge conference and then there are private facebook groups that might have tens of thousands of people in it but they're private facebook groups and this stuff yeah. is not happening in the public sphere and i thought okay i've got 300,000 400,000 500,000 people <laughs> listening to this show um Let's make what is now the most, at least the most reviewed Stoicism podcast that has ever existed and potentially the most listened to on a regular basis, Stoicism podcast that exists. Let's make the default Stoicism conversation, Stoic conversations be more colorful, be more like examining, okay, yeah, we get it. You're really tough if you're a Stoic. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're like a judge or whatever. You're really boring and lame and you have no emotions. We we understand that that's what you think stoicism is. So let us show you why that's wrong, and let us then deepen your understanding so that if so that you can figure out one of two things: one, holy crap, stoicism is way cooler, way way more useful, and way more important to the overall health of our shared planet in many in many ways, or stoicism is actually kind of lame now that I really have a full understanding of it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to go find the thing that's really for me because either one of those things is a good thing to figure out uh, because watered down half stoicism or quarter stoicism is not sure. It's helpful to be resilient, but that's not actually the point of stoicism. Resiliency is a side effect of developing a virtuous character. I, that's I, good to know that. 
Yeah, and I, 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 I t- you, you know, I, I totally agree with your, your perspective on the, the content creation there. Um, it's part of the reason why I do what I do, trying to bring more academic update discussions and, and boil them down to being more accessible and, and bring them to people so they can learn about that. Um, but what I think what's really important for your podcast, as well as a historian looking at it from a historical perspective, is that by understanding a belief system, an ideal, a, a philosophy, then you can you can better contextualize the beliefs and the attitudes and the actions of the people from those societies as well so you know if you're trying to analyze something that someone's doing in ancient greece and and you know that they're a stoic you can you can learn about stoicism and inform your understanding of that person and inform your understanding of the the cultural the social historical context so that you can better analyze it and better write about it Um, i think it's something that you know historians do really well but it's not something that we've exported particularly well um uh, yeah i think that's i think that's a really good and, and and you know when you're having those conversations about sex and sexuality you're also exploring the historical narrative around these ideas which yet again we as historians because a lot of it now is kept behind these inaccessible texts mm-hmm. uh, and you're reading behind you know, you're having to pay a hundred pounds sometimes for access to a journal. You're you're being able to cut through and understand historical attitudes towards sex or gender roles or mm-hmm. government, which I think is a, a really interesting aspect. Which is a really interesting thing about Masonius Rufus actually, while he was a prude in some ways, he was also probably the most women's not women's rights because it would not have been a concept in ancient Rome, but he he was very like women should participate in things too, which seems at odds with that very prudish view yeah. of sex. Uh, so it is really interesting when you dive into it, but there are, you know, if you're busy becoming a very informed historian, you're not very busy becoming an excellent communicator necessarily, especially if you're writing for other historians or, and not to pick on historians, this is true of any highly specialized field of study. You become, you become good at communicating to people in your field, and people in your field are, of course, very informed and very intelligent, very nuanced in their understanding. Like when academics argue, it's always about this thing that everyone outside of academia would be like, "That seems like a real tiny, insignificant difference between <laughs> the two <Yeah>. things <laughs> you're saying," and I don't even care about that. Uh, and I think it's also important for us to say that when those academic presses and journals charge that money. The, the writers of the work, the researchers, the academics make none of that. Well, not none, but it's very, very, very not a lot. In fact, to the extent that if you, if you publish a great book to an academic press, you're, I mean, you're not really, you're, you were paid to do the research and write the book, but then unless you, you will get royalties, but those royalties are so slight that the only chance in heck you have of those royalties being, let's say, financially considerable for you is if you get translation in multiple countries and then that might be a reasonable source of revenue for academics but academics make almost no money through publishing through academic presses very annoying i imagine for academics but th- but then i also like to say another part of stoicism that i can't, can't shut up about it as yeah. you can tell i hope you don't have any ad breaks in your show because you're not gonna have time to fit them in no that's fine <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh is the idea of uh, fate. Stoics were determinists of a kind. 
And I think that that has led some people who have this very casual interest in stoicism and they're like, oh, let's learn a little bit about stoicism today. And they're like, oh, they believe in this idea of fate where everything is predetermined. Not exactly. It's actually a really complicated view of fate. And there's a famous example, um, and I don't think it's always agreed who put it down. Some people say Zeno, some people say Chrysippus, and some people I think even say Epictetus, but I want to say it's Chrysippus that came up with this. Uh, and it's this idea of a dog tied to a cart, that the flow of time, so to speak, is the cart, and it's rolling downhill, and you don't control the slope of the hill it's rolling down, or when it gets steep, or when it gets slopey again. Uh, you don't control the length of the rope that you are tied to the cart with, and you don't control whether or not you move forward in time, but you do have some slack in that rope. And with that slack, that that represents the confines of what you were able to choose and decide. So uh, I kind of like, I have come up with a different version of this, which is something like, and this is the book we have coming out, fingers crossed, <laughs> praying to Zeus that that will, <laughs> that will uh, happen sooner than later. Um, but the idea is that, that you are on a river, river represents time, you're in a canoe with a paddle on the river, and you cannot control what that river is shaped like. It has nothing to do with you. Uh, and you can't control where that river ends and terminates. It's the end of your life. And you can't control the weather that happens to you while you're on the river. But you do have that paddle. And if there are rocks in front of you, you do have the ability to steer a bit. And when it rains, you have the ability to make decisions about how you let that rain impact how impact your mood. And if there are other people paddling, you can paddle over to them and you can have a conversation with them. And if you you know, if you run aground and you have to reset your canoe, you've learned something that the next time the channel gets really thin, you may not run aground the next time because you've gotten better at paddling. So that paddle and the slack in that rope represents the limitations of your ability to choose. Now that's tied to this kind of idea of soft determinism. And stoicism is very weird because some people will say that there is no free will and I'm not one of those people. I argue that there, if there's any amount of free will in the equation, then the answer is you have free will. Even if it's limited, if free will exists, then you have it. And so the Stoic idea is that everything that happens to you is does have somewhat ancient, not to coin a History Channel television show name, but does have ancient origins in that everything that happens leads to everything else in one way or another, whether it's a large impact or not, right? We have... We, you know, we had dinosaurs, then we had a meteor, and then we didn't have any dinosaurs anymore. Uh, and there being no dinosaurs is the result of there being a meteor. And the position of the Earth is the result of somehow the Big Bang. And the meteor's position is also the result of that. So there's this loose connection through time of cause and effect. Everything is connected in that sense. But human beings, because we have this really weird version of consciousness where we can ruminate and we can fortune tell and we can reason, we are like these little organic decision-making machines. So everything leads up to us having a thought. And while it's in our brain, we have control over what we're thinking. But then the second we make the decision and take the action. So I'm thinking about whether or not I should kick a can down the street. It's my, I have full, complete freedom of will to decide to kick that can. But the moment I kick the can, that's it. Now it's back to fate and I have no control whatsoever because the can will roll one way or the other 
And some of that has to do with how hard I kicked it, but some of it has to do with whether the wind's blowing. Some of it has to do with the pitch of the hill that is rolling down. Some of it has to do with the kind of shoe that I was wearing, right? Uh, so it's this really complex idea of fate, but the Stoics were determinists. But there's a little bit of free will and stoicism, and I think academics really hate when I say that, but that's how I feel about it. I think I think that ties in really nicely nicely with history, where you know one small event can lead to massive events happening in the future. Uh, you know, if uh, say this is a really rudimental one, but if Henry the Seventh's son Prince Arthur hadn't died, you know, would we have had? Henry VIII would we have had the Stuarts would we have had the uh the Republic era of Oliver Cromwell and if Henry the seventh's wife wasn't drunk that night she would not have tolerated having sex with Henry and (laughs) he would have never been born right like it's all this it's very you know it's all strung together in a really crazy weird wonderful weird way Uh, and and I think that's that's a nice point Hannah to to now move to the fun question that I do for all our guests on the podcast so you have started this this other Instagram account, which I absolutely love, uh, which is your Tanner's Trips uh, Instagram. So you travel a lot. You've been going to a load of places recently. What has been the three best places that you visited and experienced? Ooh, okay. So the first one is the first time I ever traveled out of America. And it was back in 20... I want to say it was 2011 because I'm pretty sure the Haiti earthquake was in 2010. And I went the following December to install water filtration devices to try to combat what at that point had grown into a cholera uh, pandemic, epidemic pandemic. I don't know the rules. Uh, And that trip was life changing because, you know, I knew that there were places in the world, like I had an idea of what Haiti was, what condition it was in. And when I got there, I was absolutely right about that condition. But there was something about seeing it and importantly, meeting the people who I think in that trip, there were two events in particular where we went to a small seaside village called, I want to say it was called Persine. And it was all this tin-sided ramshackle housing and, you know, a slum in every sense of the word. Uh, the dirtiest you could imagine it, double it, it was, it was terrible. But there were happy kids with a bubble machine. I don't know who gave them the bubble machine, but they were, they were so happy and people were going about their lives in a way that suggested they were grateful for their lives. And at that point, I don't remember how old I was. I was born in 83. So you could do the math. So hopefully somebody can do the math. Uh, I had not been introduced to stoicism at the time. And I remember just thinking like, how in the world, (laughs) how could you possibly be like this, this is terrible. You're in a terrible situation and you're playing with this bubble machine. This is insane. The parents are happy. Kids are smiling. Everybody's having a good time. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then there was another moment where I visited a family where the father had to walk like some ungodly number of miles, eight, nine, 10 miles a day to get to work. And then they'd work for 10 hours and then, then they would walk back. It was the only form of transportation they had. And they lived in a concrete block basically that had the roof had been either never finished or destroyed or they couldn't afford to finish it. Haiti, especially in the South, of course, is very impoverished. That's an understatement of the year. It is incredibly poor. And there's a lot of Chinese aid and U.S. aid tarps and tents that you can see pretty much everywhere, especially following the earthquake. And this house with no roof has a blue 
tarp over it, a USAID tarp, I think. And I don't know if you've ever been under plastic, but it's like an oven. And, you know, Haiti is in the Caribbean. So it's, it's hot. <laughs> it's very hot. Uh, and these people are, you know, just getting dehydrated because of the sun. And then they're drinking water, which is infected with cholera, which dehydrates them further. And which gives them diarrhea, which dehydrates them further. So then they have to drink more water, which is is like this terribly vicious cycle. And I remember again, the kids were happy and the parents were hopeful. And when I left and I was in, I was in the back of a, I don't know, like a pathfinder or something on the way back. And I'm talking to one of our guides, DJ, and I'm like, so is this like, this is like the worst, right? And he turns and he looks at me and he's like, oh my gosh, no, this is like way better than it was last year. Things are really looking up. And I was like, what the, I could just, it blew my mind that people in such dire straits could be so positive. It really blew my mind. So, so that trip is probably, it sounds odd to say that Haiti after an earthquake was one of the best places I ever went. But for that reason, one of the best places I ever went. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of my travel is fairly recent. I didn't go anywhere else until less than a year ago when I went to the UK for two months and I visited London and Newcastle and Aberdeen and some other places in Scotland and some other places in the UK. And I think what happened, and if you have a lot of American listeners, God, they're going to hate me for saying this, but I think what happened is that my understanding of stoicism and focus on the cosmopolis and on virtue coincided with this realization that America is very, it's very me centric. My freedoms, my rights, my possessions, me, me, me. And the UK, while I'm sure some of that happens, I was only there for two months, right? I'm not saying that that doesn't exist at all in the UK. I'm not letting you off that easy. <laughs> but there was a, the, this default position did not exist in the UK. And the default position in the UK seemed to be more like focused on, quote unquote, the greater good. And I mean, if there's any suggestion that that is the case, you have the NHS. I mean, like you have, so I mean, that, that's a pretty big testament to the idea that a default thought about the NHS, about a default thought of Britons or of uh, members of the United Kingdom, because they're not all Britons, that they care about the whole. And I just feel like that is so absent in America that in fact, it's the reason that I'm moving to the UK. That realization is that I can no longer square American society and existence with what has now become the only important thing to me, which is the development of a virtuous character, which requires me to care about other people for the sake of the development of virtuous character, which sometimes makes stoicism, you could say, oh, so stoicism is selfish. Yes, stoicism is about developing virtue, but because you're being selfish about developing virtue, the side effect is that you must be you must think about things in a way that is reflective of a virtuous character because if I say, "Oh, my neighbor's hungry or ill, and that's his problem." Well, what does that reflect of my character? Something that's not good. And does a sage have a not good character? No. <laughs> so I have to care about my neighbor if they're hungry and I have anything to do about it or if they're ill. Uh, so I, th I think that'd be my second answer. Did you ask for a third? Yeah, yeah. Let's have a. Let's have, even though those are two very profound experiences. Okay. Let's say a third. I'm in right now. I've I've visited my dad, North Carolina, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I will tell you, 
that I didn't realize, even though I spent 20 some odd years in Florida, which is technically the South, but I think it's a different kind of South than the Carolinas are, uh, that it was recently 4th of July and everything has been closed for a week. And there are no sidewalks in North Carolina. It seems like I've, I'm walking around cities and I just hit grass patches and it's not a very walkable area. Uh, and I think I've realized that, um, man, America doesn't really value. <laughs> it seems like walkability very much either, which is something that the UK uh, really seems to value a lot more. Like my, my average steps in the UK were like, 12,000 steps a day, 20,000 steps a day when I was in London. And here I'm trying really hard for them to be like eight or 10,000, but it's like I run out of sidewalk. There's nowhere to go. So, you know, this sounds a little bit like America bashing. And I guess maybe that's just the mood I'm in uh, because it's 90 degrees and the humidity is 90% and there's no breeze and there's nothing to do. And so I'm feeling a bit ornery, but I don't know. I think that my travels have led me to believe that I am part of the cosmopolis and not part of just one in particular country because that's where I was born or that's what other people think I should be. Uh, and I think that's probably the biggest uh, benefit of, of traveling. In fact, uh, Kai and I just talked about this on a recent episode of the podcast where the number one way to act more stoically perhaps, or to put yourself in a mindset where you are practicing prosake, which is the art of paying attention to our thoughts, attitudes, and actions is to travel. Because if you travel, you are necessarily put into contact with people you would have never put been put into contact with if you hadn't traveled. And that provides you with more information. The more information you have, the more adequately and effectively you can think about your thoughts, actions, and attitudes. You become a more well-informed, well-rounded person. And that ultimately serves the stoic trying to develop a good character, in my opinion. Sorry, America. <laughs> I love you for other reasons, just not yeah. for these. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there are three really, really profound experiences, and they're really interesting to hear about as well. Um, and yeah, you better you better get used to walking because uh, everything is within walking distance here. So <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you what: I went to Durham like my second week there, and the Durham is extremely hilly for one. And the train station at the top of the hill, which I thought was amazing when I arrived because I'm like, oh, look at the view. Durham's so pretty. Look at these castles. And then I walked down the hill, walked around Durham for like six hours, and then realized I had to walk back up a very steep hill (laughs) to get back to the train station. And I was not happy about that. Although here's the one criticism I have of the UK so far. There's very little accessibility in the UK, physical accessibility. Uh, If you're somebody with a wheelchair in particular, it's probably hellacious. And that's only because everything is so old that there's a historical value to a lot of buildings. And so the argument of, well, let's put in a wheelchair lift becomes a very difficult argument to have if in order to do so, you have to knock down a 3000 year old wall, right? That was part of a picked colony or something like it's, it's pretty... That, but that's really the only thing I noticed where I was like, mm, America's got the UK beat on this. Yeah, we um, and we don't have the room to be building, you know, having gone to the US quite a bit, to be building these massive ramps that, that you guys have going like three, right. three back and forth. <laughs> we do have like 40 foot of ramp to yeah. the entrance. And so that's true. We do. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think you know, that's, that's going to be a good, I, I think that's, you know, that's, they're three good experiences. That's what I meant. So, Obviously, people have enjoyed 
listening to you, Tanner, and, and, and me talking about history and stoicism together. And I think we we've definitely experienced and 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 highlighted that there's a, there's a massive overlap between the two. And you know, just as disciplines, there's a there's a massive intersection. So if people want to find you online and listen to your podcast, where can they go? And I know you're going to say not all major podcast slides. <laughs> if if all if all your American listeners want to send me hate mail, uh, they can act. I'm, I'll provide that. Sure, Tanner at nosages.com. You can email me if you have any questions about stoicism or if you want to get angry with me. There you go. That's my personal business email. They're one and the same. Uh, but if you're looking to connect with me on social, I have recently made the decision actually. I really thought Elon's acquisition of Twitter would sort itself out after enough time. So I, I stuck on there. They even paid for a verified badge. I was trying to be a good sport. And I just, today I was like, no, I can't do this anymore. It's like, there's no point in me being here. My audience isn't here anymore. So I deleted my Twitter account, but I do have a T2 account and also a new Instagram. Um, what is it called? Threads account. So you can find me on T2 by going to t2.social. Uh, you can find me under Tanner. I've, I've been there early enough to get that. Uh, and you can follow me on Instagram or Instagram threads at Tanner Thinks. And if you want to listen to the podcast, which is probably the thing most people want to do at this point, is that you can go to stoicismpod.com and there's links to all those things there and other things as well, like our Discord community and such, which uh, Jackson is part of. Uh, or, you know, you could find us on Substack at stoicismpod.substack.com. So just stoicismpod.com will find you links to all the things you could possibly want from me. Uh, and hopefully you'll go to that and we'll connect. Yeah, and I, I certainly recommend listening to, to Tanner's podcast and join that Discord community because they're, they're a great place to be and everyone's really supportive. So, and, and the podcast is incredibly informative as well. So I definitely recommend listening and getting involved because uh, I know you're going to like it. And if you have enjoyed listening to this episode with myself and Tanner, uh, please consider supporting myself by subscribing to history jackson plus on apple podcasts well thank you very much for coming on tanner thank you and everybody subscribe to him subscribe <laughs> to jackson jackson puts a lot of work into this uh and he deserves your financial support don't if you can afford it don't mooch <laughs> if you can <laughs> afford you, it give, give him a few dollars he's, he's earned it <laughs>